0: folks. Um, right, I, I need to scream, so um, kind of brace yourselves, mute for a few minutes, turn the volume down, whatever it is. Okay, here we go. Ah! Flipping hell, this episode I get to speak with the amazing Hannah Branigan. Um, some of you may not actually know who she is. Um, if you are kind of a geeky into dog training like i am um hannah is one of the people kind of leading the way in their open geeky discussions through her very own podcast which is called drinking from the toilet i know best name ever um hannah is a phenomenal dog trainer in her own right um is a kpa instructor she's an author podcaster uh, runs her own programs online courses all kinds of amazing things she is absolutely brilliant and a complete hero of mine so to get the to get an email to say that she would be happy to join me on the wolf and Parson podcast was a true personal and professional moment in time that is marked in the calendar forever now i try not to fanboy too much during this episode i'm sure it creeps in every now and then but um The reason I actually asked Hannah to come and join us is to talk about the world of obedience, uh, particularly competition obedience. And obviously, Hannah is based over in the States, so there's a few things, obviously, in terms of their programs that are a little bit different from the rest of the world. However, we do dive into all of that. Anyway, you will see why I absolutely love this lady. She is a phenomenal, phenomenal person, an amazing trainer, and her enthusiasm and passion and love for learning as a human and with our dogs is second to none so you will see why she is one of my absolute favorites anyway that's enough of me let's get on to the amazing still in a little bit of shock talk with the one and only hannah brannigan hello hannah uh, welcome to the woofing in Parson podcast thank you for having me uh no seriously thank you for coming uh, as, as fans of my show will know i'm a i'm um, a bit of a crazy fanboy, So So um, I apologize if I just kind of go blank during this interview as I have little moments of realization and panic sets in, um, okay. but yeah, no, see, thank you so much for coming along. Um Before we dive into today's topic, would you mind just giving the listeners a little bit of an introduction to kind of who you are, what you do, where you come from?
1: Yeah. Um, I'm, well, I'm a fellow podcaster. I have a podcast called Drinking from the Toilet, which is, um, the audience is geared mainly towards other dog trainers. Um, and we go real kind of deep and nerdy about all trainings uh, or all topics related to training, behavior, learning, and, um, adjacent, adjacent topics as well. Um, I am, I have been a professional dog trainer for um, a little while now. uh, Math is hard, um more than 10 years. And um, I started out teaching mainly or teaching entirely family pet um, manners and skills and with a heavy emphasis on working with uh, reactivity and aggression in dogs. So of course that was very, very, well, I had personal experience with it. That's how I got into dog training in the first place. And then, um, you know, people, there's such a common concern that, that folks have that gets them into seeking out a dog trainer. So And we did a lot of that for several years and then um, kind of got um, built up a business and a practice with that and had other trainers working with me and um, got more and more into curriculum design and teaching other trainers. So teaching, you know, as a dog trainer, we're really teaching people how to train dogs. And so then I you know, kind of worked my way upstream to teaching people how to teach people how to train dogs. Um, so it gets kind of kind of meta really fast. Um, and, you know, a big part of my purpose is in trying to really push. I'm really interested in the pushing the field forward in terms of better techniques, more effective techniques, more humane techniques for both animals and people. So I'm really very passionate about finding new and better ways to use positive reinforcement um, to let us help help more teams and ultimately make the world a better place.
0: Yes, yes. All for that. All for that. Um, and yeah, I a big shout out to your podcast as well, Hannah. There's many times I'm screaming at my radio or my speaker system or whatever it is I'm listening on in complete agreement, to some of the topics that you delve into. So um, I will, as always, kind of put a lot of show notes in there, covering the, the various links. Um, I won't lie, you missed many things out. I must, you're an author. You're a KPA, <laughs> That's true. Yeah. faculty member. you're um, Obviously, and, and a competition winner in, across many different disciplines as well.
1: Yeah. So I do have a book. I have two, two books. Well, 1.5 books, really. I have um, Awesome Obedience was my first book, which is like the big, um, massive book that I poured 10 years worth of, of experience and, and learning into. Um, and then I have Awesome Obedience, The Field Guide, which is really a companion. So um, similar content, but arranged in more of a field guide um, kind of manner. So, um, so I have those. Um, I do participate, I tinker in, in just about everything dog sport related to some level, just depending on what's accessible to me, um, where I'm at. And um, both both geographically and like life stage and resource wise, um, some dog sports are more expensive than others. And um, I don't, I think very few of us get into dog training for the money. So <laughs> <laughs> it's a little, little bit of a catch me too there, but I'm really very interested in I'm interested in learning, I'm interested in how dogs learn, I'm interested in how people learn. And I'm really very interested in that interface between the dog and the human and how we interact with each other and how we've had these two species that um, are biologically so dissimilar and yet through you know thousands of years of evolution, we've developed uh, ways to communicate and work together. And the all the different dog sports have, Developed or evolved to kind of showcase um, different aspects of that, and so every time I, I I love to go and look at what are folks doing in a in a particular sport, a sport I've never you know encountered before, never worked with before, and what are the similarities and what are the differences, and what can I take away from what's working well for them um, and apply it in other other areas, including um, other sports, but also at home um, and, and with pet dogs and with helping with behavior problems, because the, I know that the principles of behavior are the same, whatever the application is, but a lot of times the, the, the real world, especially again, when you're looking at that, that dynamic between two or more organisms, if we're talking about multiple dogs or multiple people and multiple dogs, it gets like just infinitely more complex. Um, and in, in the real world, it's sometimes hard to see how those principles are applying because there're just so many variables and one of the things that i've discovered over time is that when i'm i'm seeing something and i don't know how to explain it again i'm working with the assumption i know the principles are in play here but a lot of times the like the most important most salient variable is one that i'm not even aware of perceiving like something like scent um, i can't perceive what the dogs are perceiving but they're Able to respond to that, or some small movement that they're picking up on that I'm not aware of, or some piece of the context that doesn't seem important to me but turns out to be really important to the dogs. Um, and the more different, like the more different pictures I see those kinds of interactions play out, the more I learn about about behavior and about learning um, and about that kind of teamwork that. That again it, it turns out i can apply and then i can kind of reverse engineer what i'm seeing over here and then can i build it back up in this context you know over here maybe something that um, i see colleagues working in gun dogs because they've been doing that for hundreds of years and they've solved a lot of problems that show up in gun dog work that maybe have a lot of overlap with stuff that i run into working with protection dogs or working with um, search and rescue dogs or working with obedience dogs or agility dogs and can I borrow some of that stuff? Figure out what what's making it work. What's important? You know, what's, what's superstition? What's the stuff that that actually they think matters, but it turns out pro- probably doesn't. Yeah. Um, and then obviously same thing for me. What are the things that I think matter that turn out probably don't? And, and just the every time I can kind of lay those pictures uh, on top of each other, and I can see I can see the shapes of stuff, and I just I find that really interesting, and I learn so much. Um, about about dog and human behavior.
0: I, I totally echo and just just kind of picking on on your example there. My last episode was talking to a colleague who does gun dog training. We had that exact same discussion of how again the gun dog world has certainly in the UK has a little bit of a um, kind of a preconceived picture about it. So it's very kind of tweed and shotguns is kind of I think how we described it on the, on the podcast and you know shooting sports and things like that are obviously you know not everybody's cup of tea. Mm-hmm. However, the actual techniques and the skills that obviously the, the handler and the dog can learn doing gun dog work are so transferable into many other aspects. Whether that is everyday pet dog life, or like you say, other sports or other disciplines that you're doing, it's very easy to kind of overlook them and say, "I'm not a gun dog person," therefore, I'm just kind of dismissing the gun dog world of training because actually, there might be a lot of good stuff in there that, like you say, you can draw out and wean for for any aspect of life, whatever it is you're doing
1: yeah totally i mean people are people like wherever you go like that is something that i have noticed sure there's some cultural differences between like where i am in my part of the country and other parts of even just this country and then going from country to country but but again people are going to people and human behavior is relatively constant in a lot of ways and then dogs are our dogs again we have variations between breeds and um and environments but all of all of what it is to be a dog trainer is about hey i've got this this, this species, this individual that has it comes with a, a set of behaviors, a repertoire. And I'm looking to refine those behaviors in a direction that is helpful for me and for our relationship, whether that is, can I reduce the amount of cat chasing so that we can all live in the same house together and enjoy our companionship and, and have good quality of life, including the cat? Um, am I taking that um, some aspect of that hunting, um, predatory sequence of behaviors that dogs as predators all come with, and some aspects of it are stronger in some breeds, terriers, for example, um, and and much softer in others, labradors, for example, um, you know, cavalier, king charles spaniel. That you know, there there are, are aspects of it may be stronger or less strong, but all of the sports are really about um, grabbing a couple or a segment of those types of behaviors. And again, how can I harness those, refine them to do some productive work? And again, same same thing there. Hopefully if you're bringing a dog into your home, you're appreciating some aspects of dog behavior, but inevitably when you are sharing your life full time with another organism, you're gonna like some things about their behavior and there's gonna be some things about their behavior that's annoying. And it doesn't even matter what species it is. And then it's like, how much can I massage the environment to to make sure um, both of our needs are met? How much do I need to change my behavior? How much flexibility do I have on on affecting the dog's behavior? And that whole kind of complex interaction.
0: Yeah, I feel my wife has to do that quite a lot with me. It's um, <laughs> it like a, an ever-going challenge. It's, yep. um, well, I think that's wigs as nicely. Um, just picking up on your point there, just about kind of breed specifics and things like that. I, again, it's, it never fails to fascinate me. I was on a course literally last week. I've just come back from doing um, some scent handling instructor assessment e course. Um, and there was a lady there who has um, an Olympia-level agility dog, which happens to be a sighthound. It's a lurcher. And here she is, as the dogs got older and no longer kind of can compete with arthritis and things like that, just shifted into the world of scent. And again, obviously breed wise, not a dog you would normally kind of pin up there as some of the best sniffing dogs in the world. But watching her and this dog work was just phenomenal. So it's it just constantly amazes you like how you can just pick all those different disciplines, all those different things, regardless of whether it's a breed specific trait or potentially not, but the dog's got a desire to do something and you can harness that and use those kind of sports and disciplines to really, uh, like you say, affect life and make it a happier place for, for human and dog.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, certainly nose work or scent work as a specific example, they all have noses, even pugs. And so they can all do some, some degree of that. I mean, they're using their noses all the time anyways. And again, can I just kind of turn that into a sport? Um, or, or a structured activity and, uh, and do something together. And I think it's uh, it, that, that story is such a common one where there's uh, you know dog's career change for whatever reason. Um, and age is a, a common reason or injury, um, or just life circumstances change. And, um, it is, it's something that I've experienced as I kind of flip from sport to sport, um, we'll call it research or adult ADHD. I don't know, but um, learn again, it's the building the communication skills between you and your dog, the learn, learning how to learn, but that's kind of cliche at this point. Um, it's, it's relatively easy if you have an open mind um, and you're coming at it from a level of principles to transfer those skills to a different sport into to a different sport, which is not to say that every Basset hound is going to be like a really hot agility or herding dog but um but i can certainly apply the skills i have around reinforcement and and cues and shaping and um structuring sessions and those things tend to be the same um same skills and then i'm just swapping out you know what's in the middle there what is the skill specifically that i'm working on
0: yeah definitely and so i think that teases up nicely to, to kind of the move move into the world of, of kind of obedience which i know is a uh, is, well, you've got an entire book about it, which I keep waving at the camera, which I realize podcast people can't see. And sadly, <laughs> Sharpies don't work over the internet, so I can't get you to sign it. Um, but could you tell me a little bit about kind of obedience for you, kind of where, how you got into it, kind of what dogs you did, why did it become such a, a you know a passionate area for you that led to ultimately writing a book about it?
1: You know, it was totally by accident, and I'm still not entirely sure I have an explanation for it. I had, um, I got into dog training the, the way that a lot of us end up as dog trainers. I had a dog that had a lot of problems and th- yeah, through the, through the <laughs> I process, exactly, um, through the process of trying to find, figure out how to help him. Um, I, that's how I got in, interested in training. And I was looking for trainers to help me and I was reading books and, and looking for resources and trying to apply it. And I got um, introduced to clicker training through that. And using positive reinforcement training, and and it was, I, mean, I think it's not um, irrelevant that it was not the first thing that I encountered when I was trying to work through his behavior. He was very um, reactive, aggressive, whatever label. He barked and lunged at other dogs. He barked and lunged at unfamiliar people. Um, he had bitten a couple of dogs and people, including me. And so those were problems for us. And um, the first things that I tried with training were more traditional, um, focused very much on stopping the barking and the lunging and, um, stopping him from looking at other behaviors, using tools, using leashes, um, punishment based techniques. And it was actually through that, that he ended up biting me for the first time. And I thought in the, in the moment I thought, well, that didn't work. Um, because before he was only biting other people and now he's biting me. And I consider that not to be an improvement that's worse. (laughs) And, um, And so, yeah, so then I was introduced again, just almost by chance to clicker training and we had been using food before, but in like, just not, not the same way, not from the same perspective and clicker training is different from traditional training in that it's very much focused on building behavior, on teaching what you want your dog to do instead and what you want them to do instead of what you want them to not do. And um, the dog in question was a hound mix and he was very easy to motivate with food. And it, I mean, really relatively quickly changed our relationship quite a lot, Um, partly because I was giving him a lot of food. And I think that never hurts from a classical conditioning standpoint uh, to, to influence his opinion of training in general. But also when I started changing my mindset from stopping the barking to building different skills instead, all of a sudden I had like, like a wide field of possibility because, oh, I can use the clicker to teach him to look at me. Sure. And to sit and to down and to walk on a leash and that, you know, that worked, but I can also teach him to touch a target. And I can also teach him to, to go put his feet on a platform. And I can also teach him to roll over and to roll up in a blanket and to get a beer from the fridge. And I can teach him to do all these things. And, and after getting some success with building, um, building these fun, fun skills, tricks that were cool and, you know, impressed my friends and neighbors. I mean, I was in dog training, so I didn't have that many human friends, but, um, but it was, it it was a lot of fun. And I started to look for what else could I teach him and what else could I teach him? And, um, I started taking him to a a class that was held at a local, uh, that clinic that was for, um, they call it the canine good citizen program. Um, over here uh, in the U S and it's basically souped up pet manners. It's got loose leash walking. It's got sitting politely to, to greed. It's got like a sort of low level handling um, grooming and handling kind of stuff. Um, basic sit stay, basic um, recall. And we smoked that class, got the little certificate at the end. And I was like, well, that feels really, really pretty good. Like I, I like to be reinforced. That's pretty yeah, cool. Definitely. What up? Yeah, what else could we do? And so I go on the internet um, and he's a mixed breed. And in um, in the AKC, which is the American Kennel Club, that's the, the largest, most ubiquitous titling organization, competitive organization for dog sports and dogs. Um, they, at that time, only allowed purebred dogs. I did not have a purebred dog. Um, but I did find a different organization that did allow mixed breed dogs. And it turned out they happened to have... Um, competition that was coming up in just a few weeks and it was only a couple of hours away and i was very young at this point and had um a lot more time and uh, very little sense so i just read the read basically the rules on the on the website there um entered the competition drove down there and it just went in and just did it and got away with it effectively
0: (laughs) I feel that might be an undersell there, Hannah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, no, no, it was not, it was not, it was not high quality training. It was not a high quality performance. I didn't even have, um, I've written about this on my blog. I didn't have the right equipment because one um, reading for comprehension is hard. And two rule books are not actually written to be read. They're, they're, they're not actually written to learn how to do the thing. So I, yeah. I have a whole pet peeve around that one, um, but I had the wrong kind of collar. I had the wrong kind of leash and, some strangers stopped me ringside and helped me swap out to, um, you know, leashes oh, and collars. And I went in and, and it was, it was, you know, not amazing. Um, I didn't even really know what I was doing wrong. Like I, well, all of it, Every what I did wrong was all of it. Um, but you know, got by, got a ribbon. Um, again, I find ribbons really reinforcing. I have, um, absolutely no problem admitting that external validation is very powerful
0: I, I, I think we all do <laughs> to be fair I'm looking at your wall I'm already jealous I can see in the background of your of your lovely office here, there is some ribbons hanging compared yeah, to yeah. Well, I, I've got a guitar hanging that's about as much as my achievement is uh <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah 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 I mean I've not it's not like my self-worth is tied up in my achievement or anything it's fine <laughs> but um but yeah I mean that was really fun so then I started to look for um you know other kinds of competition I started to say well what could I do to, to do this better how could I teach now that I know what it's, now I, you know, while I was there, I was seeing other dogs that had actually been trained and handlers who actually knew you know, some, to some degree what they were doing. Sometimes some of them a lot, quite a lot. And I was like, oh, well, I want my dog to look like that. So how do I take this, um, little stray you know, from the country mixed breed hound who's not, nothing going for him in terms of performance dog, like lineage or upbringing or, or anything genetics. Um, and how could I help him look more like that? You know, I want to look like that team. And, um, and so I started to pay more attention and figure out like, what is is it that I like about what they're doing? Well, their dog looks at them all the time when they're doing the heel work. My dog did not look at me maybe three times the the entire time. He mostly followed me, but it was not what I would now call healing and, um, you know, try and figure out, well, what could I teach? How could I break that down? Um, and around that same time, I, through this whole process, I encountered, someone who was you know more competitive more experienced in in the sports and she kind of took me under her wing and very informally and she happened to have um a belgian shepherds belgian Tervuren, and she had a friend who was breeding litter that was related to her dogs and so they gave me one of those puppies again i don't know why um it was very lucky because i could not have afforded a yeah you know, air quotes, real dog at that point, I was in graduate school. And so I was, you know, living off of $19,000 a year and lots of ramen noodles and beans, um, and somehow also (laughs) dogs, dogs, um, but, um, but yeah. And so then I get, you know, first purebred dog and I'm really excited. And so I'm trying all of the sports and becoming more successful as I'm starting to figure things out. And I do think that, it, you know, at this point or that point, my lack of experience was actually an advantage because I didn't know, I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't have any preconceived learning. I had no idea of what, how, how you're supposed to, to train a certain thing. Um, and so I was just making it up based off of what I had learned about positive reinforcement, what I had learned about using clicker training, primarily from like a couple of books and, and VHS tapes that I had borrowed from, from friends, um, that I met through the, through the course of this and, um, and applying it. And so I'm doing things entirely, I'm going to air quotes again, wrong, but trying out different stuff that maybe other folks hadn't tried before because they were building off of lessons or, or, you know, trainer other trainers, um, and. What kind of happened was um, at that same time I was starting to teach classes. At um, I'd been working as a after graduate school I worked as a vet tech for a while and they saw what I was doing with my dogs after work and they're like, hey, do you want to teach classes here? You could do a puppy class. So that was how I got into to teaching. Again, I had no idea what I was doing. I did terrible, terrible job initially, um, but growth, I guess, is a big value for me. So once I recognize that I'm, I'm doing badly, what, can I, what do I need to learn? What skills do I need to improve in order to stop sucking quite so much? Um, and how could I get better at that? And so I ended up growing that, that pet dog business. And then I had this whole um, like cohort of, of students, clients, that were kind of like me many of them came and started working with me because their dog had reactivity or, or aggression issues they got hooked on training once they had some success and so i had to keep having to invent like well this is going to be family pet level four class and we'll teach you know more fancy things and and then you know when this is the tricks class and and they and then they would say well and what else could we train so like, well, i guess we could do rally obedience. I've got the signs in my car. So I bring them out and I teach them how to to do some of those things. And and they had such a great time. And then they went to local trials and got some ribbons, which then they told other people, um, where did you learn to do that? Because again, it's, it's, they were just, they were very much like me. They had mostly mixed breed dogs who were like, not border collies, not German shepherds. um, And they were doing better than one would expect someone off to walk in off the street with a random um random dog and so then you know more people would come and ask and so i had to develop an actual curriculum around teaching rally and obedience and those kinds of skills um to keep just to keep these people busy because they wouldn't leave I was like you i've taught you I've everything done those
0: customers <laughs> you can graduate <laughs> yeah you can
1: graduate go be free but they're like no we want to do more things like okay um and yeah and so that's when i started to to have to figure out, well, this is what I'm doing. You know, I'm doing tons of trial and error, mostly error. Um, here's a bunch of stuff that doesn't work, so we'll throw that away. And here's, here's the things that I think are working. So I, I give them to, to these clients and they'll do what I would tell them to do. And then I would learn if what I was instructing them to do was actually effective. And then I would m- modify and evolve my instruction um, until we're getting the outcomes that we're, we're looking for and, um, you know, and evolving that over time. Um, and then around the time that my daughter was born, I had to figure out a way to, you know, keep supporting us without being physically available as much. And so that's how I kind of got into doing this online. Um, and can I take the stuff I've been teaching in person for this, you know, these years and can I write that out in written format and can I provide it through video content and how can I coach people remotely, um, which was a whole nother process, but I like to learn. So. Um, so it worked for me.
0: Amazing. Amazing. Uh, thank you so much for sharing uh, That's really insightful. I've got a few questions, if you don't mind. Yeah. First, first the, the, that original dog, your hound, who was obviously a bit lungy, a bit barky. As you started to progress into that kind of the obedience work and obviously kind of through positive reinforcement, how did you and him cope? Because I, I've got a, a German Shepherd. She, she can be exactly the same. And the thought of her taking her to a competition where there's lots of strange people and strange dogs probably like many people would fill me with absolute dread of, Oh my God, she'll have a meltdown. I'll have a meltdown. We'll all be rocking and crying in the back of the van. So <laughs> how did you, did you find that that work and that kind of teamwork through obedience kind of helped break through a few barriers for you? Or did you I kind mean, of go in it with blissful ignorance and just hopefully
1: <laughs> mostly the latter? I didn't, it didn't occur to me. I didn't know enough to be yeah. anxious. I mean, I really, I think about it. If I were to have that dog again, now, One, I could definitely do a better job with my skills, but I also, I would not recommend someone take a dog with that kind of, with a a bite history period, but particularly with that kind of bite history into a public competition. (laughs) Um, And and I I don't think that I would, it would be very hard for me to relax and have a good time uh, under those circumstances. I do think that there is a lot of value. Um, Again, if we kind of, can we reverse engineer success? What did work? Well, I poured tons of reinforcement history into a broad repertoire of behaviors. So he had not, not just, um, and, and we can talk about this more if you want, but my pendulum has swung quite a bit in terms of how I approach things like reactivity um, with him. Yeah, initially I did a ton of work directly on, can we go for a walk around my neighbor? And I was living in student housing, graduate student housing, so it was in an apartment, tight spaces, there was no park. To get him out to where there would be people, so I'm doing things like a lot of people. I'm walking him in the middle of the night, and I'm walking him at you know five o'clock in the morning. Um, so you know, on a practical level, I was doing a lot of work initially on walking past other dogs, walking past other people, um, handling that. But I pretty once I had some enough progress on that that we were able to to live our daily lives um, with relatively few breakthrough episodes. I really shifted my focus to how many other things can i teach and some of that meant teaching those things around other dogs and people because we're you know going to classes i'm going to workshops um i'm practicing at the there was a, a park that had a dog park attached to it which was the closest place to the apartment housing that i was living in um which it, can, it would be terrible not a very good shaping plan in terms of place to do it was what i had so i would be not usually in the dog park, but in the parking lot nearby just to have some more space so that I could work with some of these things. So I'm, I'm just training, you know, dozens, hundreds of different behaviors, um, around other dogs and people, including obedience behaviors, um, and building a lot of reinforcement history for that. And those were the behaviors that I got then at the trial, um, in the competition, in a building with a lot of other dogs and people. Now it does help that at an obedience trial at a dog show, everyone there is a dog person. So they're focused on their dogs and their dogs are focused on them to some degree. And it's, so it's a much, well, it's a, it's a hard environment. It's easier than like a street festival or, you know, or just a park where you have pet owners with varying degrees of control and focus. Um, he, and he never had trouble, in a working environment like that. I don't, I can't think of a particular explosion, certainly nothing that was big enough that it stuck in my mind. Yeah. Um, I think because of that, because the context was so um, relatively structured compared to everyday life, uh, it was actually easier for him there in a lot of ways. Um, and and I, think that that, I think that that really made a big difference.
0: Fantastic. I'm very aware that obviously obedience varies around the world with different organizations and everything else and there, but and obviously you're a predominantly American demographic. So what what does obedience look like with AKC and and over there? What kind of skills, what behaviors, what things are are kind of in that repertoire of, of, of obedience work?
1: Yeah. So uh, obedience, um, the specific rules vary and the specific exercises vary from country to country. Um, the U S uh, Canada is not very, not that different, only tiny differences. There's some differences between the U S and like FCI, um, or the UK, uh, the, but the core of the sport is really very similar. I think most of the differences are, are in just like the scoring, which the training overlaps so much. Um, because the training is dogs are, again dogs are dogs and people are people um so the the exercises um in every version of, of obedience there's a lot of of healing or heel work which is the dog uh, moving at the handler side and um it's in an obedience context it's a very kind of stylized behavior so it's a much more uh intense um focused behavior than your' like casual loosely walking, which should be functional just around um, you know, around the neighborhood. Um, out and about. Healing, it tends to be a lot closer. Um, in most versions of obedience, it's at the left side is the traditional position for, um, for heel work. And, um, and again, the specific scoring, changes. Um, in the US, we're supposed to have your dog as close as possible without physically touching. In the UK, a lot more touching is yeah. allowed. And in different um, different protection sports, you know, more and less touching is allowed. Um, but again, that's a difference of like an inch in in, in
0: the probably it makes all the difference so yeah
1: (laughs) yeah it changes the training a little bit but but not significantly um so there's always some of that and you're having to move through some kind of pattern where the dog moves with you and the goal is to have the dog and handler team be as seamless as possible so when you're changing direction and speed starting and stopping the dog is is right there with you um and i think in terms of things you might have seen on television the easiest comparison is like dressage with horses. So we're looking for that same kind of um, seamless, like almost um, the, the cues from the, the, the rider, or the handler are almost invisible. Um, and it, it seems like the dog is reading the human's mind. Um, and as you're going through some kind of pattern that showcases that those changes of direction and how, um, how in tune you are as, as a team. Um, So that's a big, a big part of every level of obedience. Um, And then there's also other um, skills or exercises as well. There's some kind of retrieving where they have to go pick up an object that's either been placed or thrown and bring it back to you and deliver it in a specific way. There's usually some kind of, um, some kind of exercise where you have to send the dog away from you to some kind of station or point in space, and then direct them to give, to to do different things, maybe change direction, maybe go over jumps or obstacles, Um, position changes, sit down, stand um, all on cue. Um, And there's usually some kind of scent component where they're having to find an object that has been scented either by you or by someone else um, and identify that and and bring it back um, to the handler and deliver that. Um, I think those are the the main, there's different, and then there's different variations of how yeah, exactly yeah. you have to do all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, different, different various complications at different levels and in different
0: countries. That, no, that's, that's It's really insightful. Cause I think again, um, speaking from a UK perspective, obviously we have Crufts. It's uh, as we speak, it's actually coming up mm-hmm. in, in the weekend ahead. And obviously there's usually lots of demos and displays and competitions all take place there. So um, I think people will have seen it. Even in the UK we're, we're big fans of, kind of our local police forces doing little demonstrations at country fairs and and kind of summer shows and that kind of thing. So you see elements of that type of work kind of taking place. appreciate it might be bordering into the protection world there, but a lot of it is quite similar in terms of you'll see that very, I call it that military-style heel where, it's you know, it's very... Like I said, almost dressage it's very kind of prancy pause, head straight up, mm-hmm. kind of looking lovingly into, uh, into their handlers' eyes as they move along together. So I think that definitely listeners will have had some experiences of elements of what you spoke about there, but it's nice to kind of see that entire picture as you, as you go through. Mm-hmm. So kind of looking at those, those techniques that you train, am I right in thinking, and I'm kind of the slightly loaded question, kind of knowing you and read the book, etc. but... <laughs> The exercises themselves are not quite irrelevant, but I think I'm all already right, thinking your real passion lies in that teamwork and how you teach it and how you build it up. And then the exercise or the behavior that you get at the end of it is kind of just the bonus and the cherry on the cake. It's, it's more about working together, understanding your dog's kind of drives and motivations and using them to shape your training.
1: Totally. Yeah, I think in the obedience, the sport itself is really just kind of a medium um, for, for expression of those, of those things. But yeah, I'm, I'm always, again, I'm fascinated with like how I love this plasticity of behavior. Like how can we break things down? What, what components might go into this skill? How could I teach these skills, um, separately and then build them back up and put them together to, to create some beautiful outcome? Um, there's, there's a lot of, it's, it's, it's um, it's, it's intellectually very stimulating for me. it's also there's a lot of room for creative expression because especially when you're looking at some a behavior or set of behaviors that is as complex as heal work, there are infinite ways you could possibly break that down. Um, and every you know everybody who ends up being training in in, uh, in obedience has their you know kind of their progression, their 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 bag of tricks that they use for how they like to teach healing. And the, most of them work um, in as much as they, you adhere to the principles of, of learning. Um, and you'll get slightly different aesthetic outcomes if you follow kind of this progression, um, or if you follow this one. And a lot of that's based on like, you know, how I teach healing and how I teach people to teach healing is very much based on what I like about Mm -hmm. what it looks like. So, well, you know, what's my perfect picture of what I want to feel, um, when I'm doing healing with my dogs is one of the things that makes me feel really good. Um, even, even, even without a ribbon, it's it's fun for me. Um, and and then, okay, what are the 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 different skills that I pull out of that, and then teach, and where I input emphasis, and the things that I, you know, all will overlook, um, are all kind of based on that that aesthetic. Uh, so that's how I make the training choices. And somebody else with a slightly different, like, oh, I like you know, I like it um, with a little more salt or whatever. Um, they're going to make slightly different choices and emphasize other aspects that I might not and they might not accept some of the trade-offs that I would accept because they have a slightly different picture and a different learning history and probably different dogs. Um and it's but it is that um it's that it's that plasticity it's that how this is rather than going out and buying a dog that comes from generation after generation after generation of um you know, high scoring competitive obedience dogs, which, which people do. And I don't, I don't want this to sound like I'm judging them for that because they again, they their picture is different. What they're looking for is different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I have my dogs that I love that have found me in different ways. And I'm interested in what can I do with my training to, to optimize this dog's performance for what he has available, how, and I, I love pushing the envelope. Like how far can I stretch that? Like how much can I make my border terriers healing look like my Belgian shepherds healing? And it turns out um, there's a lot more give there than you would have thought. And sometimes it means that I'm to other people wasting time, but I'm also okay with that because it's cool. <laughs> and also, you know, again, I'm learning, I'm learning about behavior and I'm learning. Um, if I can take a terrier who has, you know, she's, he's not even half the size of a, of a Belgian and he's got like half the length legs, but I can get him taking bigger and bigger steps. So he almost doesn't look like a terrier anymore. Um, I mean, he's not taller, no, there's nothing hey, I can yeah. do in training to make him taller, <laughs> but I can, I can, I have more influence if I figure out the right way to break something down, um. And sometimes it means I have to completely abandon what's worked with a different dog and try something completely new, and you know, fail a lot, and then figure out, okay, no, these are the things that work. But the experience of that is so freeing and empowering, and it then makes me think, well, you know what? I can probably also help my border colleague who stares at, at shadows. You know, the same kind of thing. And um, I just have to figure out how to break it down. I have to figure out how to use the reinforcement in the way that I want. So it, it is. It's very much about. About figuring out how the behavior works, and I could do that in just about anything, but obedience is available, um, and it's and it's cool to figure out how many different ways can I teach this thing that you know people have been teaching for a hundred years. But what else could I do? Because I can't. It's like I can't follow a recipe to save my life um, in cooking. So like, you know, I never make soup the same way twice. I'm always, what if I add a little bit of cumin this time? And um, well, that was a disaster. Let's never do that again. But. <laughs> You know, but then you find new stuff that you wouldn't have thought of if you were focused more on the the way to do the thing. that's really kind of what i what I get excited about
0: I, and I think that's that's honestly, it's amazing because I think a lot of us we do get hung up on the end goal, don't we 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 get hung up on the outcome and actually like you say the joy of Of having a a canine companion and working together and doing some fun stuff together is—it is that journey. It's that learning and figuring out what makes each other's tick and what does my dog do that gives me those little motivational boosts to keep going, and what does my dog get their kicks out of? And I think we often overlook a lot of that. And certainly, actually, kind of a lot of the kind of pet dog people I work with and things like that, we we do get slightly obsessive with the the comparison to the other dogs in the park, and we want our dogs to do the same thing, and we kind of just want to fast forward which for a lot of professionals is the fun bit, the learning bit. And how do we do it? How (laughs) do we tap into it? But I think for a lot of general people who do have companion, companion dogs in their lives, they, we can get a little bit kind of overly goal focused and, and not appreciate the beauty in, in that teamwork and that learning journey together. And actually that's, that is the best bit because that's where you actually spend the most time together. And that's what you spend kind of that relationship building and bond doing.
1: Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's what a relationship is. It's that, kind of learning together stuff um, and it's that's what I love about working with with animals that's why I love working with people honestly as well um, and I would not have I I mean I 15 years ago Hannah would be shocked to hear me say <laughs> anything like that because I got into dog training because I I didn't have people skills
0: <laughs> but
1: uh, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> you don't echo that one. I think many of us go in with that that slightly rose tinted glasses view that working with animals means we don't get to work with people, and then very quickly no. get the shock that actually it's very much the other way around.
1: It's almost <laughs> entirely people and bookkeeping. It's terrible. Um, yeah the the learning together um with those little back and like there's just I think a lot about um, how a lot of things come down to like the most fundamental. Or concept, um, principle of behavior is that we behave for effect. We behave to have influence over our environment. And when we get frustrated, it's because we're doing behavior and it isn't having an effect. Like that's what I spend most of my time in therapy complaining about. Well, I did this thing and it was supposed to work and it didn't. Um, I, you know, I did my, did my communication strategy and, uh, and this client still got mad at me or whatever. Um, but when we're when we're working, and it's probably why dog training gut was very addictive for me. Um, when I land on even a small thing that works, I'm affecting my environment, and I see that outcome. And and then my dog has the same thing towards me, right? So he's interacting with me, and he's changing my behavior, and then I'm changing his behavior. And so, in a you know a five minute session, I'm getting to do things and. And I'm affecting. I'm seeing the effects. Um, I'm seeing the the. Con- I'm having control over over my environment, at least the, very much the the dog part um, yeah. of my environment. And um, and that that's like the primary reinforcer, really, um, is having that that sense of my behavior affects my circumstances.
0: Definitely, that's I've got to just draw back very quickly, if you don't mind. The mm-hmm. variety of dogs that you've done obviously general teaching with, but your obedience work with, you've just dropped a couple of kind of breeds in there. And I'm, I'm Mm -hmm. desperate to know kind of the, the the repertoire of dogs that you've done this with. So you mentioned your hound kind of right in the early days, Belgian Mm -hmm. shepherd, border Mm -hmm. terrier.
1: Mm -hmm. Yep.
0: What else Um, on the list?
1: Yeah. So my personal dogs that, that I have owned um, and competed with, I had uh, my hound mixed to begin with, and he was, he was a a biggish hound. So like more coon hound, fox hound size, um probably coon hound just in my area that would be the yeah that would be the hound of of um popularity um and then I had three Belgian shepherds um actually four I had also had a Malinois um in there as well um and then a border terrier rugby and I my youngest now is a border collie um so same geographical location wildly different dogs <laughs> yeah. Yeah. in every way yeah
0: yeah right. and I, I suppose looking at it and again picking on obedience again but that must be really nice for your clients and obviously people you work with to kind of see that such a discipline and such a sport has has that kind of transferability to all those types of dogs because again a little bit like um the lurch i mentioned before is it's it's very easy to fall into the trap of being a little bit breedist and and expecting as I sit here stroking my German shepherd that that there'd be German shepherds and Belgian shepherds and and certain breeds specific for those, for those types of sports. And I think a lot of people will dismiss going into obedience style training and lessons with a, with a professional potentially just purely because of the type of dog they've got.
1: Yeah. That was the, how like why obedience and rally obedience ended up being kind of where I spent a lot of my time was because I could do it with any dog Um, it's there's, there's a certain amount of physical challenge to it, but it's relatively low impact compared to something like agility. Um, it doesn't matter how big or small your dog. I mean, it does matter size matters, but, um, but it's what you do with it. But the, um, the, like, I, I did some protection should at the time, then IPO and now IIGP, um, with a couple of my Belgians and it would be my first turf that I had was like on the small side of the standard for the breed. So she was really about 30, she was only 35 pounds. Um, she was like 20 inches tall. Um, and in that sport, you're the The equipment is the same height, no matter what size your dog is. So, if you have a Rottweiler or, or a German Shepherd, um, you're jumping the one meter jump. The dumbbells are the same size. The 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 decoy, the the bad guy, is the same size, and you're doing the same things at the same distances. And so, it could be really frustrating when I have a 35 pound dog who can do the behaviors, but her legs are dangling when she's trying to she's trying to bite the bad guy and do and do the work and the um, the jump is much bigger for her than it would be for a dog. That's, that's, you know, 26, 28, 30 inches tall. Um, so, but with obedience, it's, um, because so much of the work is kind of more, more cognitive and less physical, it made it, um, a lot more accessible. So, you know, even, you know, a dog that has, um, again like to to some degree we always want to keep the dog's welfare in mind but um one of my dogs had some a hip dysplasia and um so high impact jumping was never going to be healthy for him but the work of obedience actually because because it was kind of technique and precision focused it actually overlaps quite a lot with the sort of um like almost um like physical therapy and conditioning kind of things you would yeah. want to do to strengthen and support a dog. And he lived his, I mean, a, a longer than average life with almost no symptoms. Um some arthritis towards then, but who doesn't? And um, and I really do think a lot of it was was because teaching through obedience, I'm actually the nature of the exercise, you're teaching the dog how to use their body more balanced, more effectively, more efficiently. Um So uh, there's just, there's just so much that we can do, especially with modern training that can, can bring almost, I mean, I want to say any dog, but almost any dog, you know, closer in that direction. Like we can move them along that spectrum. Um, And it, and it is, I think it is very, very um, accessible.
0: Uh, Another point, I think I should, another thing that's just kind of sparked in my mind there, as you were talking is, I think, putting my kind of pet dog hat on again it, it's those things that we often don't think about like health and well-being and physical strength and conditioning and and things that are a bit like us you know we we want to eat healthy we want to move more we want to be a little bit kind of better to our bodies than we probably are a lot of the times um and I think with our dogs we can kind of almost just think a, a charge around a field or a chase after a tennis ball is is sufficient for that when actually a lot of the time it probably let's be honest isn't and there is some funky cool stuff you can do together rather than just your dog hooning about somewhere else you (laughs) can actually work together with them and actually get some brilliant additional outcomes beyond just some cool stuff to show off to your mates let's be honest we all like to do that but you can get those additional benefits without even realizing like a bit more fitness and well-being some better proprioception limb awareness tighter muscles better ligaments all that kind of stuff and we all want i've never met anybody who isn't all for you know happy long lives for their for their pooches and and i think this is where dog sports and dog training i think that's where i think after that kind of puppy class type stage a lot of kind of Joe public we we kind of dismiss it and we don't realize how much other good stuff it can bring to the table um you know for for that for that time that we spend with them and for that for their physical and mental well-being
1: mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think it's something that i've been as mentioning earlier that kind of my, my pendulum has swung in terms of how i think about training, even, even, or especially stuff like behavioral things. Um, but like one of the things that we know from, from human health and mechanics and and everything is that, um, spending all of your time doing one activity is uh, usually detrimental, right? Like, um, we've all been, we've all been struggling with the, the eye strain of going from, doing things outside to doing things on zoom for two years and we're looking at the same computer monitor. And so we're, you know, we're all working with, Oh, I've got suddenly this neck thing coming up or I I, something wrong with my glasses. Oh, wait, no, I just need to look away from the screen. Um, and the same thing, you know, if you're, if you're a runner and you do, all you do is running, um, every day, or, you know, the more time you spend doing a narrow, um, a narrow repertoire of activities, the more wear and tear there is on your physical body. So, um, most, people, experts that you would talk to and say, oh, you want to move your body in lots of different ways. And you want to have lots of different skills. And so, you know, being able to move in all of the different planes and having proprioception, like you mentioned, um, strength, flexibility, mobility. Um, And so with training, we can give that to our dogs. So instead of going out and I'm going to throw the ball for 10 minutes, you know, every day, which is the same repetitive activity. um, Sure. You know, we maybe get some cardiovascular benefit, but there's a ceiling to it because if you run the same three miles every day, you get fit enough to run three miles and then you stop uh, and you don't continue to get fat, in fact, you'll lose it. Um, but having a lot of variety of different ways that your dog moves their body, learning the new skills, then we're going, we're absolutely getting physical benefit. Then there's also the mental, emotional, behavioral benefit of, again, lots of different, like, lots of different kinds of behaviors. You're keeping keeping cognitive function sharp because you're learning new things. You're, you know, oh, when I, you know, and in my 40s, I'm gonna learn a new language and then I'm gonna learn a, to play the piano or whatever. Um and those things are creeping up at me. So I better figure that out. But um the um I think you know similar to our dogs having them have that more variety and then also behaviorally the more different behaviors you have in your repertoire, the more, the more flexible those behaviors are. That's how we define emotional health, I have lots If something, if something surprising happens to me, um, some, I don't know, a, a global pandemic or um, a new war or something like that. The more behaviors I already have in my repertoire, the better chance I'm gonna have to deal with whatever that new situation is. Then if I only have, this is the way that I work, everything has to be the same every day, the same breakfast when all of a sudden there's a supply chain issue and I can't get the same brand of oatmeal. I gotta figure out how to do something else. Um, The more flexibility I already have, the less stressful those changes are going to be, the more tools I'll have to draw on. And also kind of that meta learning of, well, I already know how to learn new coping strategies. So I'll just use that, how to learn a new coping strategy and I'll apply to learn, well, what coping strategy do I need to deal with this new challenge that the apocalypse has brought up for me? Um, And same thing with the dog. So any of the sports, but I think things that, um, which is one of the things I love about obedience, again, it, it. I can go out there and do heel work, which looks one way I might tomorrow go out and do a scent work session and it's totally different. Same as Bort, Um, so I get to count it, but it's like totally different behaviors, totally different reinforcement strategies, totally different uses of their body and their brain. And so like, you know, over the course of a couple of weeks, I can have a lot of different pictures and work their, work their brains, work their bodies in different ways. And then again, if they have, oh, suddenly mom's home all of the time, well, we can handle that because we have these things that we know how to do. And, you know, if at some point, maybe I go out in the world again, and then we'll have, a, you know, new repertoires. And instant, the world's always going to change. I think we yeah. can definitely agree with that. And um, so there's definitely a benefit to having a lot of behavioral fitness.
0: Yeah, definitely. That's, um, it, it is, it's just, and I'm thinking of myself here, uh, very selfishly, as, as, as you do know, on a podcast, but it's, I look at my Betty, Betty Boo as my German Shepherd who's now wandered off somewhere else. Um, you can get if it's particularly if you're dealing with a behavioural challenge, you mm-hmm. can get very obsessive with whatever thing you're doing to try and tackle that. Whether it's a you know a bit of lat, a bit of bat, whatever it might be, and you're kind of using whatever techniques you, you've kind of you've learned and, and you're doing. And depending on your success and the you know the the, the time scale it takes to to see any progress, if any it's so it's emotionally draining like it just sucks it out of you massively and and i think again that's where it's very easy we get so obsessive with I'm, I'm i'm doing air quotes here on a podcast but i'm kind of training my dog to be better around the environment of other dogs or people or whatever it is mm-hmm. we you can almost get a bit sick of in again air quote in training yet mm-hmm. actually the benefits of having a, a different sport or a different exercise or something else to do it's even though it might fall under the, the training banner it's it's a, it's a completely different world and it's a different set of skills and it's a different type of way to interact with your dog and it it can re-energize that connection a little bit more again so rather than your time being spent of every 95 percent of my dog's life is is fine as, mm. as much as I know, many people hate that word, but like it sleeps, it doesn't. We don't have any separation stress issues, uh, mm-hmm. they don't beg at the table, they don't counter surf, they don't do any of those things. It's just when I'm outside and I have this issue, yeah, you can spend all your time focusing on that issue, not doing anything else in the other 95% of the time. And that for me, certainly when I was in that stage early on, was yeah, it's just, it's just so sucking, isn't it? It's horrible. And, and I think that's where dog sports and different skills and, and that variation can actually about, reinvigorate the joy of being around my dog again, because actually we can do some stuff where I see some success and there is no external social pressure for my dog to, you know, display skills that they haven't currently got. And I don't feel like a, a failed trainer or a, a, you know, an embarrassed idiot as I walk around the street and my dog's losing their mind. And it's, and I kind of have that I can go back into the shelter of my home or my garden or wherever it is and, and do some fun stuff and actually have a little bit of passion and a little bit of success. And hopefully that'll again kind of bleed and fuel that fire into the other stuff where it might be more challenging. But I, I do find it's, it's so easy to again dismiss taking on more training. I think is how a lot of people would look at it. Yeah. Um, because you think I'm only doing one thing and that's hard enough. And what? I may or may not be seeing those results.
1: Yes and I would I I exactly you you hit the nail on the head of exactly kind of the progression or the journey that that I've been on with regards to behavior stuff. So um I air quotes again all over the place but um those those classic behavior problems separation anxiety, aggression, reactivity, um I don't know barking that are uh, are frustrating that are um often embarrassing that are at the very least annoying and, and, and do take away from our relationship. So like I was mentioning before, my, my first dog, who was probably the worst that I had in terms of behavior. Now, could he have been better had I known what I was doing, raising him? Probably. Um, but I also think that he just genetically was, came with, came with a, a hand for, for interacting with his environment that way. Um, and I did a lot of things with him and towards the end of his life, you wouldn't have known that he had bitten so many people um early earlier on and that he was such a, a pill to live with or earlier on and then the the next like then the next period of of time i was like well i have these ways that i know that i have um helped reactive dogs improve their behavior and i have a, a lot of things that i can do and they're very effective um and some of it was based on what i learned through working with him and then so again evolving working with a lot of other teams and figuring out what what works and what doesn't work, um, and I got very focused on fixing the the barking, fixing the lunging yeah. and barking at other dogs or whatever. And um, and yeah, you're right. It's like every training session or having to find another dog, and it's really high risk. Um, and it's you know there's a there's a chance you play. Got to be really on the whole time. Um, and I'm only really interested in, in this one thing. And in my mind, it's because this is the highest priority. Yeah. Uh, there's I don't. I can't use training minutes up on other things until I have fixed this dog, dog reactivity issue. Now, of course, as the owner of a German Shepherd, you probably already know that that's not something that one fixes. Yeah. It's something that one improves.
0: Absolutely. Progress, <laughs> not may... perfection, as we say. It's, uh... Yes,
1: yes. Um, <laughs> I can improve it to the point where you may go weeks, months, years without barking at another dog um, through a good combination of, of clever cueing and handling and training and you know classical desensitization, counter conditioning and management and all the things. Um, but it's still in repertoire and it's never really, really gone. So if you waited until your dog was truly cured of barking at other dogs before you trained anything else, you would have, um, you know, if you're lucky, a 14-year training plan and then that's it. Yes. Um, but what I, I realized actually, and I feel like I have enough teams that I have worked with at this point, um, was when I had my own next dog that came into my life was my own dog that had this kind of like low threshold for barking at um, other dogs biting other dogs Um, general reactivity to a lot of things in her world one exactly as you described it sucked i found myself dreading wanting to work with her because the if we had a great session it was okay i didn't feel a lot of like, there's no exhilaration of, no. of getting, getting through, a, you know, a a
0: times, yeah, it?
1: exactly. It's like, okay, phew, nothing bad happened. Um, and I actually think I made her worse because every time i got her out to train, I was pushing, um, I was pushing her on the specific set of, um, triggers that, that were most upsetting for her. Cause I felt like that was the most important. So that was where I was putting the most of my time. And I don't think either of us enjoyed that year. Um, and I think I, I actually made her more reactive, uh, in the long run because of that really heavy focus. And when I shifted that focus to training, lots of other things, because, because like you were describing, because this is terrible. What if she's never fixed and, um, and, and we die like this, I'm just, I can't do this anymore. I'm just going to put a pin in it. And if she never leaves my house, she never leaves my house that's fine. You know what? I can provide her a quality life. And that was really what I did. I was like, I'm just not going to take her out because I can't deal with it. It's not good for my mental health. Um, and I know it's not good for hers. (laughs) So I like kept her home and I trained a lot of other things that were more fun. Uh, some sport things, never thinking we'll, we'll definitely be going to dog shows because she can't because if another dog sniffs her, she'll bite them. Um, and, um, spent, you know, solid year mostly doing those things. And you know what, then doing those things and other generalizing this uh, big box of lots of different behaviors, hundred different behaviors, working on them at home, working on them in the yard, working on them you know at the, the shopping center parking lot, working at the park, um, not looking for other dogs, but just doing, just generalizing them in lots of different places than yeah. when we were in a place where there were other dogs. She didn't even look at them. I didn't have to go through my whole like specific protocol for how we're dealing with uh, the appearance of another dog. We just kept doing what we were doing. And she now had The way that I think about the way I explain it, it's a little bit of a narrative, but I feel like it fits. Um, When we started together, she had one behavior that she used when other dogs were in her zone. Yeah. One very narrow set of behaviors. It was an ugly face, an ugly noise, and then if they kept coming, a bite. And she went through that really, really quickly, which is why it was really scary for me. Um, And by installing a lot of other apps in her programming. <laughs> um, now she had a hundred different behaviors to choose from. And we were way less likely to come up against the the ugly face, the sound, like the barking, the the snarling. Um, and, and she could do lots of other things. So now we go from, well, all she had was a hammer. So everything looks like a nail to now she has a whole toolbox with like paint brushes. And um, I don't even know, I, metaphors escaping me now, but um, she could do lots of other things and also do them where when other dogs were around. And I did end up competing with her and she was very successful um again because the dog show is way more controlled than trying to be to be out we would have the most trouble if we were like walking through the parking lot and someone else's dog slipped out of a truck and ran up to us that would be when we would have an issue but in the competition when she's doing her work it was like the other dogs weren't even there because she had these behaviors that were really fluent and i never again directly addressed the dog dog stuff um but, and I've but, now had life
0: uh, becomes manageable then, doesn't it? And you were having exactly. fun and you're doing good stuff. So the motivation yeah, it built too. our
1: relationship. So I had reinforcement history. We had reinforcement history with each other to cash in on. And I've now had enough other teams um, that worked with me. Like I've, I'm thinking of one that right now is in my program that I didn't actually realize she was part of why she was doing a virtual program was because she couldn't take that dog into a class because she was so reactive. And um and she happened to mention, like, oh yeah, I can't believe it. You know, we're working at um at the pet store and she's not even looking at the other dogs. I was like, well, I've never seen her look at another dog. She's like, oh my gosh, she was so reactive, I couldn't take her anywhere. And all we've done is the stuff that that we would do to prepare for. You know, obedience stuff. So we're doing like all of those skills, but again, just having really fluent skills that are all paying attention to the, the human and responding to cues, responding to a variety of cues, having all these behaviors, ways to move her body, different directions, backwards, forwards, up, down, sideways. Um, she can do all of those movements and it isn't all, here's another dog. I move forward and I move forward with my mouth open. So <laughs> it was, um, and she, and she comment brought it up herself. And I've, I've had, I've heard that story over and over and over and over again. It's like, Oh, there really is something to that
0: oh, yeah, definitely. behaviorally. Yeah. Yeah. caught, cool. But it, it, I always, when I flip it, it's always, it can always feel like a hard sell. Like if, if a client came to me and said, oh, I've got a dog, dog, dog reactivity. Uh, I want some help and support. We want to work on it. It's causing me all kinds of stress and anxiety and issues. And I go, absolutely. Let's do some heel work. Let's do some retrieves. Let's do, s- I, it's so hard for, for a lot of the the kind of general populace to, to kind of, pair that together and even though like you see there's reams of success stories of how and when you've just beautifully articulated it there it makes complete sense but I think for a lot of people coming into it it can be hard to join those dots and realize doing it what feels like a completely unrelated thing can benefit the actual issue that you might be trying to, to try to troubleshoot or try to improve on And it's I always kind of it feels like somebody coming around and saying I've got a problem with my radiator. And they say, absolutely. Let's rewire your house. And it's like, <laughs> no, no, not. I want uh, my radiator is the problem, not the rewiring of my house, but somewhere down the line, there might be, you know, it's, it's an electric boiler, for example. I don't know. I'm, I'm, it's not my line of work, but it, it, it is difficult to kind of compute that sometimes when you're, you're in, you're going to a professional for support with a very specific need and they start giving you suggestions and advice and protocols and training things and, that don't seem to have a direct relationship, and it's quite hard to say. Trust me, this will work. <laughs> the best, like, but it's it's the dogs that are the issue. But yeah, like you say, yeah. you, you've got you know a, a list, an arm length list of clients where they they may have started it literally to do something a little bit more fun with the dog, but actually then see that benefit and that bleed into other parts of their life because the dog can decompress and the dog can learn, like you say, many many different skills that that benefit them in a whole host of different avenues of life, not the particular competition obedience, which you might have started out for.
1: Yeah, and the language that I've found helpful in these conversations recently is, I think especially because of our current environment as humans, there's a lot of talk um, on social media and everywhere else about things like stress management and coping strategies. And what we're really talking about here is coping strategies. I mean, that's just another, another name for having more than one behavior that you can do when something stressful happens. Yes. So it might be coloring books. It might be going for a run. It might be um, cooking, gardening. Like, like we all have, um, my therapist says, there's no such thing as a bad coping strategy, only lonely ones. But we, <laughs> the more coping strategies that you have, so the more different behaviors, the more flexible your behavior is, um, then the, the, the better equipped you are. So having like, Oh, here comes another dog. I only have one thing that I can do. Um, or, Oh, you know, something bad has happened. I only have one thing that I can do and it's, um, to eat chips and, and drink. Um, have or you,
0: have you been spying on me? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Or I could some of the time do that, but I could also some of the time go for a walk. I could also some of the time phone a friend. I could also some of the time read a book. I could also some of the time disassociate on TikTok. I don't know. Um, but like, again, the more of those you do, than one, um, you're likely, you're, you're, there's a possibility you'll land on one that feels better and is actually more effective, but also it's dilution. Um, there's a dilution factor. So um, I think uh, my friend, Cindy Martin, brought up the the analogy, which I love of like a playlist. And so like, if you have only one song on your playlist, then every time um, you pull up your music app, it's going to play that song over and over and over again. But if you have a hundred songs on your playlist and they're on shuffle, then if there's one irritating song on that playlist, you're going to hear it a lot less often. Um, So the more behaviors we can install, (laughs) um, put on that playlist, and even if you do nothing else, you're going to hit that that irritating behavior less often and that already feels better and then if we also do some specific things with stimulus control or management or all the you know all the all the tricks um maybe we see that even less often and maybe so much less often than the limit approaches zero um
0: uh, that's a that's a beautiful analogy i love that and uh, I'll, I'll be totally stealing it what was your friend's name who came up with that just so i can give credit where it's you
1: I think it was Cindy Martin. I'm happy to give that to Cindy. So yeah, um,
0: we'll take yeah. it. It's uh, rather just outright plagiarize it. I will, uh, right. <laughs> I will try and uh, yeah. try and give that in. Um, Hannah, I'm very conscious how much time I'm taking up. So I just want to try and uh, just ask you a quick few final questions, mm-hmm. if you don't mind. Um, what would be putting you on the spot? What would be your top three things? Why doing obedience with your dog is, is such a good thing to do. If you had to sell it to a complete novice. who had no idea what it was. What kind of three things would you, uh, would you pull out as being the the key selling factors for, for doing such a sport?
1: Well, that is on the spot. Um, I would say, I mean, I think the most obvious one is all of the obedience exercises are really, they're derived from life skills for dogs. So, you know, healing is just a more extreme version of loose leash walking. Um, so, there's a, there's a lot there. Like if you're learning how to do those things, you're going to learn how to, to like, there's, there's applications in everyday life automatically for free. Do um, you.
0: There's also. Um, it's a doggy podcast. It's fine. I know. I know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so there's the you know, healing is a, is a more extreme example of, of loosely walking, but it came from the same kind of place. You know, I, if I'm moving through the world, I want my dog following my direction and speed. And so you're, you're focusing on those same kinds of cues and scenarios that are useful, um, in real life. I mean, retrieving is useful for so many things. Like what if you're on the couch and the remote control is all the way across the room? Like that's incredibly inconvenient. So having a, a a well-trained and conditioned um, precise retrieve behavior is very very useful uh, for that again the getting a drink from the fridge also very very handy so there's there's some relatively direct um life improvement applications um from obedience um but i think also the things that we were just talking about you're you're building reinforcement history within the relationship with your dog. You're developing that relationship. You're having, um, positive interactions, um, with your dog, um, and, and vice versa. Um, a lot of the folks that I work with in obedience are working in it because they enjoy training and they wanted, and this is kind of how I ended up in it really, in a way, um, they wanted a project to give them something to train, to get all of those benefits. And, it almost didn't matter what, but again, it's it's accessible. Any dog can do it. Um, you don't have to be perfect to have fun with it and you can move uh, any dog along the, um, you know, along the direction uh, towards a a better performance. Um, and then through, you know, having some kinds of training goals along the way in the form of maybe competition, or maybe just, you know, for themselves gives them gives them an outlet, you know, some folks will like enter a 5k in order to keep them in a healthy running habit. Um, and I have absolutely used sports (laughs) in that way, obedience specifically. Um, and I think an understanding of, of really how cues work, um, obedience is often sold as a precision, a sport of precision, and there is a precision element and that is true. But what I think it really is is about it's about stimulus control. It's about giving a specific cue and getting a specific response um, with you know a good, close to hundred percent reliability. We don't ever get there, but we are, you know, the, the lighthouse we're yes. steering towards. Um, and so it, it what I've really benefited from thinking about it is it because it really gives you some fairly arbitrary artificial limitations on what cues you can give, but it really makes me think about how my cues work and what cues I might be giving that I'm unaware of um, and really thinking about, oh gosh, you know, I'm getting this behavior, that means there's a cue. Is it a cue that I want? <laughs> Is it a cue that I don't like? And I can go in the direction of, I wanna build reliable, cue, reliable responses to cues for behaviors that I want. And then also I need to understand how cues are working with the behaviors I want to reduce as well. And it's the same principle. So I, that's uh, something that I've gotten a lot of understanding out of that. I really benefited from through the process.
0: Yeah. That, yeah. Uh, amazing. Uh, I'm looking at that. And again, because I, I think a lot of us, when we venture into again, training our dogs and working with our dogs in that way, the more you develop it, the more you understand it, it does become addictive and you can really start to learn that. And I think a lot of us just think of a cue as a word that we say, and our dog does something where actually when you get into the mechanics of it, there's so much more nuance to it. And I think once you start to scratch that, uh, you know, kind of scratch the surface of that, you'll, you know, before, you know, you're Alice in Wonderland, aren't you? you're, you're down the rabbit hole and away you go. So there they were three amazing uh, kind of highlights, reasons to, for, to look at it. So thank you so much for that. And I am going to ask you the last question. I appreciate I'm stealing a lot of your time. So we may have to wrap it up quite quickly, depending on your availability. If not, I may just have to try and sweet talk you into another episode to talk about this. But the word obedience, I won't lie, it grates on me terribly because it's kind of that word that's got that very authoritative hierarchy type kind of connotation to it. And that the dog is doing something because I've commanded it and it should do all the things that I should say it should do and all that. And it feels very, very old school and and, and kind of embedded in a world that uh, I think you and I certainly are are not a big fan of. Um, Do I suppose my question is, is, do you find that, or has it become a bit of a just a mindless label now? Which is a word for a sport that we use, and actually, people who get into it don't really come to it with that mindset and that attitude. Or is it a word that actually, if you know, if you could rule the world and change it, would you call it something else?
1: You know, it's a good question. Um, I at this point, I have been playing in my my version of obedience for long enough. I've got enough reinforcement history with, with like the word in my head that it means something totally different to me than it, it would have 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and in fact, to the, to the point where I am frequently surprised. (laughs) Um, so, you know, like I'll go on Instagram and I'll, you know, be posting something hashtag obedience. And when I click on that hashtag, uh, a lot of the, other posts under that hashtag are not at all and they're not even about dog training um as a as a progressive uh, intersectional feminist um very few of the posts under the hashtag obedience are ones that i would like to see in my feed so um it's really quite alarming i forget that there's that out in the world anymore um so definitely you know i hear what you're saying in regards to like compliance um and like a subservience uh, flavor to it. And that is it, not at all, not at all how I like to, to exist in the world in either direction. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, so it, 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 it does, it does for me, um, I do think of it very differently, um, as, as a training game, but I am very aware. So I, I don't know, I could go, you know, I've kind of thought, well, I'm because I'm stubborn. Um, my initial re- reaction is nearly always gonna be like fight. So I'm like, well, I'm gonna reclaim the word obedience and I'm gonna change the world's opinion of it, uh, rather than rename the sport because screw you. And um, there's no, there's like, there's not, not again, those Instagram posts were very eye opening for me, um. <clears throat>
0: I, I, I dare ask. I did. I wouldn't say it's a family podcast, but I'm I'm sure there's a whole, a whole, probably several worlds that that word could uh, unlock in, oh, in the ministry Well, of. I hadn't
1: even thought of that. The ones I'm looking at are mainly like religious in in tone, and so they're very much like the obedient wife, and you know, here's how I I serve my husband, and I am revolted by that. Um, I am sure that there are other other ones, but I didn't scroll down any further than that <laughs> because like, well, that is not that is not it. Um. Um, but yeah, and there are definitely people in the dog world who hear obedience and they're kind of coming from that compliance, subservient kind of mindset, um, which does imply um, almost a, a a necessary amount of punishment um, because what is the there, there's a there's an implied or else. you know, do what I say yeah. or else, and then the or else is nearly always going to be something aversive. And I am very much anti, coercion right um i want to focus on building behavior um i want to focus on how how many different ways can we build this behavior how can i use reinforcement to get these things done what are the reinforcers involved how can i understand that um so there's when i just thought of a fourth reason to play with obedience which is that uh, like in a lot of dogs yeah a lot of dog sports you can't have the traditional training primary reinforcers like food or toys with you so one of the things that you learn to work through is, well, how do I get this same performance, these same behaviors when I don't have a treat pouch, when I don't have food in my pocket? Oh, right. Wow. um, Yeah. That's even better. I I, I like that better than any of my (laughs) friends because that totally applies for other things as well. And you can use the same techniques and I, and I teach them that way, but um, I have completely derailed that train of thought um, with regards to, oh, well, reinforcement um, rather than punishment. Um, But it is, it is really different, yeah I mean, you really have to to change change your mindset um about that and i i I do think that there's definitely an argument that we could just totally drop the obedience label because everyone's gonna come to that with their own learning history and maybe it's religious and maybe it's um adult and maybe it's <laughs> and maybe it's you know more more something else but um you know, aversive, uh, coercive um, kind of, kind of mindset, command-based stuff. There are a lot of folks who get into dog training for less wholesome reasons. Um, You know, I don't know if you weren't hugged enough as a child um, or what, but you're working out some stuff on, on dogs because you can. And, um, and that's definitely a very different approach, different mindset, different set of language. And I do think that there's a lot of people who have been exposed to that kind of, um, behavior, um, in their own lives, which could, who could find the word obedience and associated words, uh, aversive for their own reasons. And I think that that's valid. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I it's, it's worth thinking about it's worth having, um, you know, if I'm going into a conversation with somebody that I don't know at all, and I'm going to say, oh, I do obedience. Um, that's going to have a meaning to them, and I won't know what that is yet. Yeah. And um, so I very much need to be aware of that. I very get very. I'm very guilty of being in my bubble of uh, other people who love clicker training and clicker training philosophy and positive reinforcement, and they, you know, they're interested in, in enthusiasm and building a relationship with their dogs. And I forget um, until you know I'm confronted with something <laughs> um, that that not everybody is. Thinks of it that way. Not everyone thinks of obedience from that perspective, um, or a dog training from that perspective, or living life in the world from that yeah, kind of
0: perspective. It, it, it may be slightly UK-centric in in where my question was laced there because I, I do I do work a lot with kind of you know Joe Public still. That's that's my main client base and totally. I, when I a large proportion of them, and I'm sure they won't mind me saying this, is when they come to me and say, I'd like to do obedience work. And when I talk to them about what does it look like? What do you think of it? Kind of, it's, there is a lot of, like you say, there's a lot of learned history. There's a lot of social conditioning there that, that is, is built into this very, the dog does as I command, as I cue, as I say, and they do all this cool stuff because, you know, I am, um, not so much in these words, but it's coming from that, that age old pack alfrey type mindset. And it's in the UK, obedience work it is is kind of got that that little bit of baggage with it, which is is why I wanted to ask. Because I think, like you say, in reality, like all labels and all words, it's very much the world that you operate in and how you use them and what they mean to you. But yeah, definitely in the UK, I think it's got a slightly more it slightly more my... baggage in that in that sense of doctrine, yeah. what it means.
1: No, it is not at all, uh, limited, um, to the UK. It is absolutely over here. In fact, you know, one of the things, um, maybe I find useful is, is I'll nearly always say competitive obedience or competition obedience, cause it is such a different thing. Um, I will see dog trainers websites and if they are describing themselves as obedience trainers, but without the competitive
0: um, red flag.
1: Like, it's a red flag. It is completely a red flag. Um, it usually means, uh, cause we still have a, uh, we have shop callers over here. Um, so it nearly always means there's going to be a shot caller involved and it's absolutely focused on compliance and submission, you know, whether or not they use, um, that old outdated dominance based language or not, it is going to be that, that compliance and submission mindset, the, the do what I say or else. And I'm, you know, I have, um, <clears throat> you know, there's the, and this isn't limited to that kind of training, but there is there's that um, specific definition of what a good dog is and what a good yeah. dog should look like, and it usually is very um, limit limited behavior. It is yeah, yes. um, very rigid behavior. It's a very rigid definition, very control based definition, and um, and that is so the opposite of what we know. What we know behavioral wellness looks like, like less behavior is, is never moving in the direction of wellness. No. Um, it is, it is the opposite. So, so it's, it's uh, Kathy Sadeo has a, a, another uh, staying on the shoulder of giants, but, um, she has an analogy that I love. I think about frequently with how I think, um, in the, um, she talks about gardening and she talks about rather than focusing on the weeds, plant your garden densely with the flowers that you want to see grow there and you have enough flowers they're going to crowd out the weeds and it is it is the complete opposite approach from i'm going to take my dog for a walk it's going to walk this specific way it's not going to sniff it's not going to look right it's not going to look left we're going to go on this particular path and you know then he's going to lay lay down when i tell him to and he doesn't move and he doesn't look around and doesn't sniffing like we're removing behaviors from the repertoire rather than building new ones um and that is definitely different and and um and again i think and also not consistent with successful competitive obedience um however you're training it there's still there's still more to it there so i I agree with you completely and if i see someone i was just at um it was a a, like an outdoor camping um uh expo um, that they had uh locally here and local like for a lot of these things local businesses put up little booths um to advertise themselves whether or not they have anything to do with with outdoor camping stuff (laughs) um and there was a dog trader and absolutely the sign said obedience training and i knew from across the room what it was going to look like which i should not judge people you should not judge but I, no, but, but,
0: but yeah, but stereotypes and generalisations exist, sadly, and it's and yeah, I, a similar thing. Like you say, you hear certain buzzwords, and they are like you said, the red flags, and it makes you look twice, or it makes you review whether your assumption is correct or not. Totally. Yeah, where to go? Where to go? Uh, Hannah, I loved the the reference competition obedience. I think that's a great way to navigate. I think that's a much better use of the language and the label to really kind of shift people's mindsets away from whatever historical baggage you might have around that word to actually what it is all about and what it should really kind of light the fire for you to get involved with. So, um, I'm, yeah, I will definitely bear that in mind in the future as well as I, as I progress as a professional as well. So thank you very much for that. Yeah. Hannah, uh, final thing, and um, please let people know where they can find you, your podcast, your book, your programs. Please plug away because I'm still clutching dearly your book as, as, <laughs> as I talk to you. Um, and there's so much amazing things. I'm a, again a gushing, huge fan of your podcast. I chant and cheer in, in adoration often to many episodes as I as I drive along in my van. So please uh, share with the world where they can find more about you.
1: Yeah. Well, if you're not. Um, it- totally put off by my voice, um, entirely. You can check out my podcast, uh, which is drinking from the toilet. It's, um, you can find it pretty much anywhere where podcasts are available. Um, my book is awesome obedience. It is very much geared towards, um, the competition style that we have in the U S but I have heard from a lot of folks in the other parts of the world that they have found it useful because again, it's mostly it's 90% just good training. Yes. Um, not specific to, to the sport. So it's a, I wrote it with the intention of how could I describe how we apply what we know about really good training to solving these problems in competition obedience. Um, my website is Um, So you can find me there. Um, and I do have an online or mainly online uh, mentorship program for getting started in competition obedience, which uh, is Zero to CD. And the name is... Um, I don't know, it sounded funny to me at the time when I was winning it. Now it's just kind of got become its own thing, but it comes from the first level of um, competitive obedience title that you can earn merit badge that you can earn over here, which is CD, which stands for companion dog. And so the program is designed to take folks who are already interested in training. So it's not a good fit if you're brand new to dog training in general. But if you're like, again, I wrote it with my clients in mind. I wrote it for those folks that already, they'd taken my pet class. They took the puppy class. They took the pet dog class. They took pet dog two. They took pet dog three. They took the tricks class. And now they're like, now what else could we do? Um, so you've already got an established uh, foundation of, of training dogs then. Um, and you're interested in well, what would it be like to do some competition obedience stuff? That's what the, that's the person the program is, is aimed at. So I've got um, is probably more than half um well, I don't actually know. I need to I need to actually do a survey at this point, but there's a fair number of folks who are actually other dog trainers, they're pet dog trainers who want to improve their own skills. And so they're looking for a project to give them a canvas um, and some standards to, to to sharpen their own skills and learn new things. Um and I think also there's a marketing advantage if you're a dog trainer and you're going to trials um that it gives you some stuff you can put on your website, which doesn't hurt. Um that social validity. And then, um, you know, we got folks who've been in other, another in sports, but just a ton, a ton of people who know absolutely nothing about obedience, but love training dogs, got hooked on dog training and are looking for a way in. And so that's, um, so starting from zero to the first level of obedience title, zero two CD. Uh, and that actually opens at the end of April for enrollment. We only open twice a year. Um, it is a, a we do restrict the number of folks who can come in and it's, um, so it does fill really quickly and that will open uh, for the next uh, the next enrollment at the end of April.
0: To the twenty fifth, it is marked in my diary for the reason <laughs> you have just said. Um yeah. So, yeah, we wait a bit of breath. Oh Hannah, thank you so much. This is um, uh, again, without gushing too much, a bit of a, a life achievement. So, thank you so much for coming along and talking to me on the What's Possible podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope the listeners can see why drinking from the toilet is such an amazing audio experience because your passion and your love for all things learning and dogs is uh, is infectious. So, yeah, thank you for coming along and joining me. I, I appreciate it massively.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me. This was fun.
0: Take care. You too. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening to the Wolf in Parson podcast. As always, if you do want to get in touch, you can find us on social media. I'm at GreatPawsNE, which is GreatPawsNE for North on both Facebook and Instagram. You can also contact me via my website, which is GreatPaws.co.uk. And you can also consume some free online courses at GreatPawsGang.co.uk. Excellent. Thank you very much, folks, and we will see you soon for our next episode.